we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. Hi, y'all. I'm so glad to be here today. I'm Brian Richardson. Some of you know that, some of you don't, some of you don't care, but that's who I am. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to be here. I told Danny Pander that I would strive to honor the place that he stands every Sunday, so we love you. Um, okay, and, and um, I do want to say that if you want to find out more about this church if you want to let people know that you are here, and we would like to know that uh, you have found us, you can go to fbcsa.org connect and let us know that you're here. Uh, you can inquire about some other things that are going on in the church. Uh, it's a good entry point to get involved in the church uh, at that link. So go to fbcsa.org connect and also, for those who are part of this fellowship and this congregation, if you want to continue your worship through giving, you can go to fbcsa.org give, or there's some collection boxes here <clears throat> as well. And uh, right now, let us stand up, and we're going to read the scriptures together, okay? Let's do that. This morning, as you've heard, we're going to be in James chapter 4, um, verses 13 through 17, and so we'll read this all together. Here we go. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You boast in your arrogant stuck schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm so glad Chris was here earlier to put this gathering in context of a week that has been very difficult. Often when very difficult things happen, and, and this week has, has been... Uh, on the extreme part of that continuum of difficulty. Uh, often when difficult things happen and trials come, great sadnesses break into our lives. Uh, it exposes some fears that have already been lurking there all along that we had suppressed for a while. And some of you may find yourselves 
asking, um, what does this say about my faith? Could I get to the point that I would take my life? Or does faith actually make a difference in someone's life? Or is it just something that will placate us for a little while? You're not alone in asking these questions. I, I do want to invite you this morning to think of a time, think of a time when you felt completely secure, no danger, even at the periphery. You knew that you could trust those around you, not worrying whether they would take something you say out of context or misunderstand you. You didn't worry about money to provide for yourself and for those you love. You lived in emotional closeness with people and were free to speak about any feelings that you might have without being dismissed as flawed and tiresome. Now, for many of us, what I've just described is probably a long time ago, if at all. I mean, if you find yourself thinking it's been years ago or maybe never that you've known that kind of assurance and security, you're not alone in that. You're not. For some, the world is too much. You ever feel that way? The world is too much, and it crowds out laughter and confidence and rest how long has it been since you've had rest? How long has it been since your body, your, your body has, has been at ease? Instead of tense, uh, your shoulders, your stomach, your head, uh, your spirit and body wrapped up in anxiety. How long has it been since you've, had, you've been free from that? Often, in those circumstances that you find yourself in, and again, you're in good company if you do, if you do sense that going on in your life, often in those times you tighten your grip. You tighten your grip on people and on resources so that you can try to stop things from getting away from you. You live in a defensive posture of red alert. You see the timeline of your life slipping away with the years and you ask yourself where the solid ground is. What will keep you from being swallowed up by the world, by the overwhelming problems that, that keep pummeling you? This is, these are questions that we don't often talk about and in crowds, but they're the questions that keep some people up at night, they have me. Even if you're a Christian, sometimes you, you can't seem to find freedom from the lurking shadows of fear. And maybe you don't even know how to describe that fear, but it's there, and the worry goes up, and the grip gets tighter. And you try to hold on to things all the more and you find that you've got to find something that will save your life. 
We're going to look at the words of James this morning, as we've been doing for the past several weeks. Those words will bring you exactly what you need in your time of worry. Now, they won't, they won't flip a switch in your life, but they will bring you exactly what you need to face the realities you face in your time of worry. I want you to know that God knows where you are right now. He has not lost track of you. Our Lord told us this many times. You know, the number of the hairs on your head, uh, that kind of thing. He, he knows exactly where you are right now. And He has not lost track of you, not for one millisecond. And even more than that, He's coming to you. He's reaching for you and he's coming to you. He sees you and he will not leave you all alone. Maybe it would be good right now if <clears throat> James would quote his brother, Jesus, and tell us not to worry. But he doesn't do that. The scripture we just read, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that. He has a gruff manner about him. Maybe you've noticed that. Maybe it's from all those years of growing up with his big brother Jesus, hearing, why can't you be more like your brother? James, when he finally came to believe, he had, a, had kind of a gruff manner about him. And maybe it was from that, I don't know. But James goes about addressing these very fears. And the first thing he says in this passage is, now listen now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend time, spend a year there carrying on business and making money. I've got to tell you, this verse that James writes here, this, doesn't, this just doesn't sound like startling or a destructive thing for a person to say. If somebody mentions to you, yeah, uh, I'm going to, move across the country and because I've got this opportunity to work on, a, on an oil platform, um, offshore oil rig for about 18 months and I've done the math and it's going to allow me to provide for my family when I get back, when I return. If someone says that to you, are you then going to respond like James? Are you going to say, now listen, are you going to respond in a startled manner? Are you going to try to perform an exorcism? I mean, it, what, this, this doesn't seem to, James's response here to somebody saying something like that doesn't seem to fit uh, what the person said, but clearly, clearly James has something else in mind than just a simple conversation about job opportunities. He's responding, what, what's happening here is James is responding to a prevailing motivator in people's lives, a worldview which was around in ancient times and, and it's still alive and well today. And this worldview is the concept of shortage, shortage. You hear a lot about shortage these days. The economy seems to be a little bit shaky. Inflation is rising. 
somewhat, and the supply chain uh, is not what it used to be, apparently. And so uh, people are talking about, will we be able to get the things we want to get for the holidays, for instance? Will, will, the, will the stockings be bare uh, this Christmas, or, or will the shelves uh, not have any goods uh, on them when we go to the store or whatever? Shortage, the concept of shortage, it's very much with us, but it's always been, that concept has always been with us. And that's a certain kind of worldview. Uh, we also call it, uh, the, the, this is a very related concept, we call it getting ahead or doing well or uh, the American dream, all those things. And they're, it's, it's all predicated on the idea, the notion of shortage. All those, all those ideas trace their lineage back to the idea that there's a limited amount of wealth to be had. And that's called shortage. And the idea is that you get your slice of that pie before somebody else does. It's a zero-sum game. So you better act fast. There are winners and losers. And that's what James is talking about. Nothing could be further from the Jesus way of living than that. Shortage is a phony concept. We've gotten so used to it that we we don't even think we mind it now. We just want to make sure that we get our bids in. Uh, we get ahead of the, other, of the other guy. But it's a phony concept shortage. James tells us that the point of view he talks about in this verse is a perspective that treats something bogus as if it's genuine. He points out that uh, how we claim that everything in the world is in short supply, and, and that is the understanding that supports and, under, uh, and undergirds something like Poverty. The church revolutionized that, and you read in Acts that there were no needy persons among them. And we think, well, that was the initial fervor of that smaller group of people. But listen, Jesus built something that's scalable, and he intends for it to scale up to worldwide proportions. When people live according to this false understanding of shortage, over time, oppressor groups and oppressed groups begin to take shape in societies, and that gives rise to evil of all kinds. Now, everything in the world is not in short supply, and the Bible says that over and over. And we know this. We know that it's not in short supply because shortage is a flaw. It's a failure. It's It's a feature of a limited ability to provide. None of that describes God. He is not flawed, he is not a failure, he is not limited. God created the world, and this idea of shortage does not arise from the supply side, that is God, but from the stewardship side, that is fallen human beings who have pitted themselves against each other. God made this this universe completely capable of sustaining the human race and allowing it to thrive, but because of sin, we've become beholden to this idea of shortage. That's what James is talking about. We're, we're in a headlong rush to save our own lives, believing somebody else that will get what we need if we don't get it first. When we do that, we take what others would have to make a life for themselves, and then somebody takes it from us, and on and on it, it goes. James comes right out and says, this is not the way things really are. We create our own shortage, and James says, 
that's not the way you're called to live. You're not called to base your plans on a phony concept. And he said, uh, he, he, he often says, he often alludes to the things that Jesus says, and he doesn't quote Jesus here, but his brother Jesus had something to say about building life on shifting sand, and that's, that's kind of the sense behind James's words here, a phony concept, shifting sand. The concept of shortage is a panicked response of a mind untrained by Christ. A shortage perspective will invite you to see other people as threats. Threats to your financial security, threats to your familial security, and there will be no end to your worry. And you will teach worry to everyone near you, and worry will turn into greed, and greed will turn into fighting and turmoil with no room for peace. And so that's why James says, now listen, you who are caught up in this mindset of shortage, and there's not a one of us in this room that's untouched by that perspective of shortage. So James tells us first that we're in the cycle of acting as though wealth and resources are in short supply, and the cycle will only lead to fear and anxiety and greed in ever-increasing waves. And then second, In verse 14, James brings the entire cycle to a grinding halt by reminding you that you're going to die. Look at verse 14. Why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You ever ask that question, what is my life? It's what James asks here. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes It's kind of like James says, he says, where do you see yourself in five years? And then you finally figure out an answer to that, and he says, well, you're going to die. It's it's savage, really. Um, And, you know, it's possible to get caught up in the effort to make yourself as secure as possible to the degree that you miss that you are going to die. And James isn't just saying things for shock factor. In fact, nobody's shocked really when, when you think, oh, well, you know, people die, so it's not really shocking. But here's what's going on. And here's what James puts his finger on. We, we're thinking everybody dies, just not me. It's possible, see, to know something and not believe it. To believe something means to act as if it were true. You know the speed limit, but you act as if it's not true. Therefore, you don't really believe it. And that's how that goes. No, I'm not talking about anybody in this room. I'm just saying some people uh, do that. We do this kind of thing all the time. The same way with death. James indicates here that remembering that you will die reorients you to the way that you will live. In pop culture, this concept comes across in the phrase, live like you were dying, you know, eight seconds on that bull, Fu Manchu, or whatever that was, uh, that song. And, but, but James doesn't advocate for a bucket list. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying, so go climb a mountain. He's not saying that. He's not 
focusing on getting the most out of life, whatever that means. He's focusing on recognizing how you are up against something bigger than you. You think if you just tighten your grip on your family or on your possessions or on your sanity, you'll pull through to safety, but you can't grip any tighter, y'all. You can't. You're out of energy. And James says, open your hand because most everything is out of your hands anyway. Most everything is. We don't like to hear that. But most everything, we're not going to make a dent in. Our associate minister for single adults, Megan Langen, said it so well last Wednesday night when she was teaching at Midweek in the City. She said, it changes the way we live when we realize everything has a shelf life. And that includes you. The church in this world used to keep this in mind. The church from ancient times used to keep mortality in mind. But the church has forgotten it in these days. We're swallowed up with so many other things. The church, especially in the the West. Can you imagine church websites taking mortality seriously? What if when you went to our website, fbcsa.org, and instead of a band or a congregation or smiling faces, it showed weeping people at a funeral with the words across the top, you are going to die. Don't hire me to be the website consultant, please. That would be, that would be very bad. But James, that's what James is doing here. He's He's breaking up polite dinner party conversation. Oh, you're pursuing a degree. Oh, you're changing careers. Oh, you're hoping for a raise. Oh, you're saving up for retirement. Oh, you've got your eye on a house. James says, oh, you're, you're going to die. He says, you're nearer to death now than when you walked into this room. Mm. And you can't stop it. You can't. Bad news for the keto industry. But anyway, it's coming for you. It's coming for you. You're fading away. Could be today. Could be next year, whatever. But it's coming. And you would do well to remember that. There's an ancient church discipline, a church practice called memento mori. Memento mori, M-O-R-I, which is, when translated from the Latin, means remember you must die. Memento mori. It's a discipline which invites you to contemplate your death so that you can open your hand more on the things that you've been gripping so tightly. When you do that, those things will become more of what they need to become and then you will be freer to observe the world around you, the people around you with more humility and more humor. And more calm. The things you're gripping, the things you're gripping will eventually be free from your grip when you die. Let's just think about that just for a moment. The things that you're gripping now, they're eventually going to be free from your grip 
when you die, no matter how tightly you've, you've held on to them. So why not loosen your grip while you're alive that you may see those things become what they need to become? Memento mori will help you with that, reflecting on the fact that you're going to die. Now James has zoomed in on our daily lives and shown us how the illusion of shortage drives us to obsess over wealth and security. And he has zoomed out to the big picture of the cosmos to show us what a fallacy such obsession is because we will die no matter how secure we think we are. So we have these two revelations, unlimited supply in this universe and limited time in this life. Unlimited supply in the universe and limited time in this life. So what do we do with that? Well, James shows us right here. He punches reset, basically. This is the new way for you to live, he says. In these next verses, he says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And here's what James does in these few phrases that I just read. He invites you into a new understanding of the future. A new understanding of the future. Now, everybody in here is expecting some kind of future. We all are. James is no different than that. But he just says, I'm inviting you to see a new kind of future. Instead of the future looming as a threatening storm that will blow you away unless you tighten your grip on money and possessions and people, James says to you and to me, the Lord, the Lord is in the future. The Lord's in the future. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James is saying the Lord is in the future, and where the Lord is, you are safe. This is why it's arrogant and evil to act as, you have, as if you have control over the future. You can't possibly make the future as safe as God has already made it. Wait a minute, though. Is the future really safe? Is it really safe? What if something bad happens? Something bad is always going to happen. And because the Lord is there, you will not be destroyed. What if, the fu- what if the future doesn't turn out as I envision it? Oh my gosh, really? What if the future doesn't turn out as I envision it? Well, the future will never turn out the way you envision it. And because the Lord is there, you won't be disappointed. What if somebody... What if somebody I love dies? Well, somebody you love will die. 
And because, there's, because the Lord is there, resurrection will happen. You see, the Lord is in the future. And this is where it all comes down for the Christian. Think about how old you are right now. What's your age? 26, 42, 15, 63. If you ask Aaron Hufty, he'll claim I was just finishing college in the late 40s. So don't ask him. But listen, for the Christian... For the Christian, for the person who counts on Christ, most of your life is ahead of you no matter what age you are. Do, you, do we think that way? I'm not sure we do. For the Christian, no matter what your age presently, most of your life is ahead of you. Because Jesus rose from the dead, resurrection will come to all who count on Christ. It's, it's not just life after death that's promised us. I mean, a lot of religions teach life after death, everybody. Come on. As a reincarnated animal or as a memory or as you know, a, an entity that becomes one with the cosmos, whatever. Only Christ teaches resurrection, which is human life as God originally meant it to be, in bodies He made, breathing air, doing work, and living in this universe that He will have renewed. What a promise. Jesus was the first one to show us that promise when He rose from the dead. When you trust Jesus, when you confess that He is the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection of Jesus means that God will raise you from the dead as well. You as well. The death you die now no longer means the end of you. Most of your life is ahead of you. For those who count on Christ, most of your life is ahead of you. No matter what age you are at present, no matter how much of life has gone by, no matter how much you've misspent your years, no matter what you've failed to accomplish, most of your life is ahead of you. That is a new way of thinking about the timeline of your life. It's the Christian way of thinking because of the promise of of resurrection that Jesus foreshadowed with his own resurrection. Your life stretches out into eternity, not as a disembodied spirit, but as a fully human person in a body that will laugh and work and run and eat and figure things out and live face to face with the Lord and with each other. Then Jesus gives a, uh, then James uh, gives us a little epilogue here. Some words to conclude his thoughts in this section. He says in verse 17, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
Now, it sounds like James is scolding us, doesn't it? I mean, it, it kind of always, I mean, honestly, it kind of always sounds like James is scolding us. Again, he's, he's kind of rough, you know. Count it all joy, you know. Weep and wail and moan. Quit being rich or whatever he says. I, I don't know. He's, he says stuff, uh, kind of crazy sounding stuff. But it says he's, he's scold, it sounds like he's scolding us here. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and, and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. It just sounds like he's saying, now, all the stuff I've said, get out there and, and behave. I mean it. But it's actually a very tender admonition to us. James is teaching us here about reality. Reality. He's talked about how shortage is an illusion and the reality is that there's plenty and how we're going to die and so we, we would do well to shape our lives accordingly. And then he talks about how the Lord is in the future. 